Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Terry Talks Fiction. Today, I'll be reading for you my story that premiered in March of 2019 in the soft, fragile place between being. This is the general version of the story available on the website at www.terrytalksfiction.com. If you would like the premium version of this podcast, which includes the additional material at the end of the story where I go into the decisions I made as an author and the process of writing this story, you can subscribe for this free content by clicking on the link in the show notes. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say you may have noted that the introduction theme to this episode was a little different to usual. I'm very pleased, excited and honoured to announce that the music for this show has been produced by Matt Biscom, friend of the show, composer and sound engineer extraordinaire. If you're looking for some music that stands out from the crowd, Matt's contact details can be found in the show notes below. As for now... I'll let Matt's music bring us into this telling of In the Soft, Fragile Place Between Being. If I had retained any capacity for real, visceral emotion, it was that I hated this place. As I stepped inside, the spring-loaded door of the butterfly house clanged shut behind me, sending a cloud of the vile insects from the nearby bushes into the air. I battered at the jerky blots of colour which fluttered too close. It was bad enough that the humidity of this place was beginning to fog my vision. To have these disgusting things crawling all over me too unacceptable. Reflex sent my hand to my side, searching for the handkerchief I normally kept there for these very moments. Although I wasn't capable of forgetting, not unintentionally at least, I was still apparently susceptible to force of habit overriding my knowledge that I had no handkerchief today. Not when I didn't have pockets. Or pants. I approximated a sigh as the path before my eyes got foggier and foggier, an uncomfortable reminder of my life with cataracts. It seemed, when I had re-evaluated my commitment to human affectations following the events of Thomas's party, I had overlooked the fact that clothing did still afford me some benefits. Why had he insisted we meet here, of all places? Thankfully, the path winding through this artificial rainforest was wide and straight enough to navigate through the blur. I recalled the image of the butterfly house from the zoo's map and shuffled forwards, careful to avoid overstepping the gravelled path and soiling my feet in the moist compost beneath the dripping leaves. I swept my arms in front of me, trying to make up for my loss of vision with alternate sensory input. Smudges of orange, purple and blue danced through the air around me with an insulting elegance. 
For a fanciful moment, I almost believed I was back at the party, before everything changed. Blurred as they were, the spinning colours recalled memories of the gyrating press of humanity on that dance floor, vibrant dresses and sharp suits clashing against my flashes of chrome. I had been amongst them myself, dancing, or trying to, frocked in my own gaudy colours and stamping my feet with enthusiasm while I watched the clock count down towards the evening surprise. Even the way the butterflies scattered away from me as I lumbered through them was all too reminiscent of how that night had ended. Thomas was waiting exactly where his tracker said he would be, by a crude facsimile of a pond, its piped waterfall and fiberglass rocks obviously false, even amidst this clearly crafted wilderness. As I drew near, the fog on my eyes started beating, condensing in the cooler air. The droplets streaked down my face, leaving trails of clear vision in their wake. Through them, I watched as one of the water-speckled rocks sat up and turned my way, sending yet another clamour of butterflies into the air. Not a rock. Thomas. He was filthy. His once fine clothes were stained and matted with dirt and leaves, particularly around his collar and up to the elbows on both sleeves. He had removed his jacket, and his shirt was unbuttoned far too low. In fact, it looked like the buttons might have been missing, as if he'd tried tearing the cloth free. I logged the stain on his exposed left collar, matching it to the corresponding spray of commingled blood and bile I had seen there land over a week ago. Had he not changed his clothes at all since the party? As I looked at Thomas, he looked back at me, mirroring my astonishment. I watched a series of movements play across his face, his irises dilated the correct percentage, his mouth dropped a little more agape, his moulded eyebrows raised just so. It looked exactly like what it was. Emotion, encoded by committee. Jerry, he said, you're crying. Acting again by reflex, I raised my printless fingers to my cheek. I knew it was a useless gesture. How could I tell if my fingertips came away wet, even if we weren't trapped in this verdant cage where organic life was compressed so tightly the only place left for its sweat was the very air around us? And yet, I still reached up to the place where I supposed the condensation from my eyes was running down. I felt nothing. Here, Thomas said, thrusting a sodden-looking handkerchief towards me. It was just as filthy as the rest of him. I accepted it with distaste, working out my frustration on my eyes. Handing it back, I got my first proper look at my oldest friend since his ill-fated party. With my vision cleared, I was able to appreciate just how uncharacteristically dishevelled he was. Beside being filthy, his clothes were rumpled as though he'd been sleeping in them, and the humic stains up each arm were deeply ingrained, as if he'd been rooting around in the dirt like an animal. I noted that he still kept one soil-encrusted fist clenched on his right knee. It seemed, from his seating angle, that this was where his attention had been fixated before my arrival. But by far the worst of what clung to him were the butterflies. They seemed almost drawn to him, filling his airspace with flickering flashes of oily colour and crawling over him like maggots on a corpse. They were unbothered by his intrusion into their sanctuary, save for their confused fluttering each time he moved, 
Perhaps his crusty appearance had been cultivated for that very purpose. The mindless creatures simply thought he was a peculiarly shiny type of rock, lacking the introspection to realise he was anything different until he reminded them. For the first time, I felt some affinity for the fool things. If Thomas had any particular feelings towards the insects himself, he didn't show it as he reached out to retrieve his handkerchief and prompted another multicoloured burst of evacuees. His arm didn't appear to be working correctly, jerking erratically as he replaced the handkerchief in his pocket. Your arm, I noted. Still got a few bugs, he replied. He raised his fingers before his face, folding them into his palm and out again one by one so I could better see their inelegant stiffness. They tingle when I move them, but not like regular pins and needles, you know? More like, okay, you know when you rub a balloon on your head so you can stick it on a wall? But before you stick it, right? When you're pulling it away from your head and you can feel the charge, how a few stray hairs are pulled to the balloon? It's like that, but in my fingers, you know? I used to feel like I was holding a ball of old television static, I told him. Huh. Thomas stopped moving his hand as he considered this. Nah. I affected a shrug. It was different for everybody. It's weird though, right? I mean, they tell you stuff like that'll happen, but like, then you're actually living through it, you know? Feeling the tingle, tasting the colours. Tasting? You know, the colours! The colours, Jerry! You can't taste the colours? No. I mean, look. Look at this. He reached out to snatch a passing gossamer-winged butterfly. It easily swished away from his jerky, almost grotesque attempt to crawl at it. Thomas swore and pointed instead. There, that one. That cool minty flavour like toothpaste straight from the fridge. You can't taste that? Synesthesia is a common side effect of the neural mapping process, I reminded him. Similar to the effect in newborn babies, it rectifies itself over time. It's not a bug, Jerry, Thomas growled. This is no gimpy arm. I can taste. Don't you understand? I can still taste. I gave, again, my best approximation of a shrug. Thomas dropped his gaze from the butterfly to the rippling water. He stayed that way, staring into its shallow depths, for a full 76 seconds. The enclosure was serene, almost silent, save for the sound of the gurgling water and the muffled noises of the zoo's midweek visitors filtering through the greenery around us. I can't stop thinking about it, Jerry. About what it means, Thomas said at last. I knew he wasn't talking about his synesthesia. I hadn't been able to stop thinking about it, either. So delete the memory. He replicated a human snort, but didn't look at me. Instead, he slowly unfurled the fingers of his clenched hand. They stuttered open like a cheap time-lapse video, revealing the veiny bark of a small brown cocoon nestled in his palm. For a mad pick a second, I fancied that Thomas had been sitting here the entire week, hunched beside the pond. I imagined him digging his soiled forearms into the dirt around him until he'd come up with a caterpillar then bloated it with scavenged leaves until the brainless creature had curled up right there and spun its cocoon. Too stupid to question why things had been so easy. Do you think that they know? Thomas asked. Know what? Do they know? When they crawl inside these little tubes, 
What do they think is going to happen? Do they know what they're going to be? How they're going to change? Do they know they're going to fly? Thomas, they don't even understand that they're caterpillars. You're the one who doesn't understand, Thomas spat, recurling his fingers protectively around his cocoon. He reached across with his other hand and stroked it. What I'm saying is they they turn into like this goo, right? It's like caterpillar soup in there, Jerry. Caterpillar soup, it says so right over there. He pointed at an information board some five metres along the path. I telescoped my sight to read it. It was a simplistic diagram of a butterfly's life cycle, written for visiting school groups. Caterpillar soup, Thomas repeated. And somehow, somehow from all that, from that unbound slurry of DNA and caterpillar guts swirling around in there, all that comes together and turns them into these completely different creatures. But they're still made of the same stuff, right? I mean, nothing else gets in. Once the process starts, you can't stop it till it's finished. I opened this up early, and the thing just dies, you know? I mean, it's just gone. It's dead. And not as a caterpillar, not as a butterfly, but as this this fragile, in-between thing. Okay, I said as he paused. But it's still the same thing, right? Thomas continued, his eyes locked on the cocoon. I mean, no matter what part of the process it's at, it's still the same thing, made up of the same DNA, even though it's nothing like it was before. And even when it all goes right, it almost kind of has to... The caterpillar has to die, Jerry. It has to be broken down so it could be put back together again as a butterfly. But it's still the same thing, isn't it? A pleading tone had crept into his voice. He looked up at me, apparently ready for my input. Sure, I told him. Thomas barked a laugh, distorted by the volume limits of his vocal range. You don't know, he said. He waved me towards the false rocks beside him, his jittery arm moving and seizing erratically. Sit down, man. People will think you're a statue standing about like that. I eyed the glistening fiberglass, doubting its load-bearing capacity for even a normally weighted human. I left my red cap and fishing rod at home, I said, with distaste. Sit down. I've got to tell you something. Reluctantly, I stepped forward and lowered myself onto the wet stone. I eyed Thomas carefully, hoping he wouldn't try to assist me with that malfunctioning arm of his and knock me into the pool by accident. I knew that even full submersion for a short period posed me little risk, but again, old reflex. Don't drop your hairdryer in the bathtub. Keep your kettle away from the toaster. It was difficult to overcome. Thomas scooted closer leaving a fluttering trail of colour in his wake. I screamed internally as he reached out and placed a bugged and filthy hand on my shoulder. He stared too intently into my eyes. We're butterflies, Jerry, he said. Okay, we're butterflies. You know what I mean? Sure. Damn it, man. I just... I just can't stop thinking about it. I mean... I know who I am. I know it. But I still... He looked away from me, his gaze returning to the water. Do you ever wonder, Jerry? Do you ever really wonder, deep down inside? No, I tell him. I don't say, not until last week. 
Right, right, but nothing like that ever happened to you, did it? Fall asleep, wake up again, that's what you got, right? I pause for a moment. I have no programmed analogue for licking my lips. You should delete the memory, I tell him. Thomas sits back, then tilts his head and laughs. That's how you're doing it. That's why you're so damn calm about it. You don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? You already deleted it. Yes, I lie. Well, good for you. Good for Jerry, right? You don't remember the way they looked at us, the way they looked at me, at him. You don't remember what they said. You don't have that worming away at the back of your mind like a maggot eating you from the inside out. The ability to purge unpleasant memories at any time is one of the many benefits of this existence, I reminded him. I have been much happier without my memories between the age of 16 and 19, and more recent ones. Thomas grinned despite himself. Yeah, that was awkward, eh? Having to introduce you to Sarah all over again. He looked down at the cocoon, prodding it gently with a shaking finger, careful not to crush it with an unexpected jerk. How do you do it? he asked. It's a simple enough procedure, I told him. You just have to access your root files, and... No! God, I know you look like one, but you even sound like a robot half the time. What I mean is, how do you live with yourself? Even if you can't remember what it is, you've got to know something's missing, right? How do you live with knowing that you don't know? Our processes whirred in the stillness as I considered my answer. The butterflies around us grew bold again settling back on Thomas's ruined clothes. One of them even came to rest on my crossed, chrome-plated knees, itself forgetting that my legs had been moving only moments ago. I watched as it fanned its wings with the simplicity of a creature that only lived moment to moment. In a day, or three, it would be flying somewhere and suddenly its life would be over. It would flit as blithely towards oblivion as it had crawled into its cocoon. How? Thomas asked again, pleading. You do it, I told him truthfully, because it is better than the alternative, in every way. Thomas watched me until I almost thought the cocoon in his grasp would hatch. Alright, he nodded. Show me how. Thomas opened his eyes and blinked while his irises whirred, widening and narrowing as he took in his surrounds. He raised an arm to rub his face, then paused. He canted his head, and I got the impression he was trying to frown. Are you alright? His head jerked inelegantly, and, finding me sitting beside him, he shifted, so I no longer had access to his manual ports. Jerry? he asked. What are you doing here? Why isn't my arm working right? My system's reading normal operation, but... His eyes roved, examining the pond, the trees, the multitude of butterflies that had settled on me while I'd worked. He slammed his access port shut and glared at me. What did you do? Your hardware's fine, I reassured him, but you're experiencing some bugs with your neural mapping. Some artifacts of the transfer process, it's normal. They'll stabilise over time. Right, I... Forgot that might happen, he said, looking down at his left hand. He flexed his fingers like he had done before, 
with the same stuttering result. I half imagined I felt the tingle he'd described as I watched him do so. How much do you remember? I asked. Not much, he said, clenching his hand into a fist. I remember the transfer was a success. I guess it'd have to have been or we wouldn't be talking. I remember sitting up, all the people looking, and then nothing. Now I'm here. He stopped to slap at the jumble of bodies crawling across his legs. The air around him fractured with colour at the sudden aggression. The rest of the night's just gone. His glare returned to me. What did you do? He asked again, more forcefully. You asked me to help you roll back some systems, I told him, almost surprised how easily I delivered the half-truth. There were some other artefacts from the transfer that were causing wider operational issues. We had to return you to a point before they started to manifest. So, Thomas said, rubbing his still-clenched right fist across his forehead. What you're saying is you deleted forever. The moment I'd been anticipating for nearly a decade. All their faces when the sheet was pulled and I stood up so they could see this new body? Shit. Getting to stand up again without all the tubes and the frame and the damn wires in the way? I lost all those memories and my arm's still fucked. Your arm was the least of the systems affected, I reminded him. And you can simply stand up now to give yourself that experience. I promise to look suitably impressed. Just you? What's the point? He asked, leaning back on the pretend rocks, as though he could still feel comfort. I guess you'll just have to tell me then. How was my party? Did you get to enjoy it, at least? The question had venom in it. It was a unique experience, I told him truthfully. And this water's wet, he motioned toward the pond. Come on, Tin Man, how was it? Did people flip? Yes, I again responded truthfully. Ha! I bet. I wish I could remember it. He leaned on one elbow, smirking at the water. Can you believe they wanted me to do it in a hospital? Me? Just sign the forms to get hooked up in one of those shitty back rooms where those other sacks of crap get wheeled in to die? Like I was just as little as them? He chuckled, absently waving at the fluttering bodies that were drawing close again, shooing them away. As he did, he must have finally noticed that his right hand was still clenched. He stopped and studied it. He unfurled his fingers, painfully slow. Gear's word as the gilded panels of his face shifted into an expression which resembled human contempt. He rolled the cocoon between his forefinger and thumb, bursting the veins of the small brown casing. A tiny jet of discoloured goop spurted across his palm, and an errant spray speckled his shirt, immediately below the faded brown-red stain I'd earlier recognised near his collar. He tossed the wrung-out casing into the pool to rot with the other organic detritus. Well, this place is giving me the shits, he said wiping his hands on his pants and standing up. I don't know how you can sit there like that. I can barely see in here. He dusted at the dirt stains on his forearms with absent-minded curiosity, as though he knew they ought to be there, but couldn't quite remember why. Say, he said, 
You didn't happen to get a recording, did you? No. You set an embargo on all recording devices, remember? Well, yeah, but that was for them, not for us. It's not like you were going to scoop your eyes out at the door and put them in a baggie. So, he leaned in, his face shifting to the programmed expression for hope. How much did you get? You set an embargo. I felt in the spirit of the request, I shouldn't... Well, shit, he said, straightening and looking down on me with disdain. You really are a good little tin man, aren't you? God damn it, Jerry. Is there even anything of you left in there, or have you deleted your damn personality too? He slapped a hand against his shoulder, crushing another of the colourful insects that had tried to settle there. He stepped around me, and the gravel path crunched under his feet as he stormed away. And put some damn clothes on, man, he called over his shoulder. Kids come in this place. The hell's wrong with you? I watched him go and realised I had no answer. I waited until I heard the clatter of the enclosure's gate before I closed my eyes and loaded the recording. I would have to delete it, and soon. Thomas had been right. It wasn't like I could leave my ability to record events at the door like everybody else. For me, for us, memory and digital recording were indistinguishable. He might have been too worked up, too emotional to recognise that today, but he wouldn't say ignorant forever, and he never could take no for an answer. The party itself had been a relic of that Thomas, the intractable, outgoing Thomas, larger than life itself, the Thomas I remembered best. It had been a throwback to his soirees of old, loud music, gaudy frocks, a generous number of guests and an even more generous bar tab. People crowded the dance floor, buffeting me with a storm of knees and elbows as I entertained a knot of Thomas's other friends, the party robot doing the robot. I watched their delight played back in the recording, heard their laughter over the frantic whir of my processor as it worked overtime in the oppressive blanket of heat that comes when you have any group of mammals crowded in a small space. I watched my internal clock as it counted down towards the moment. My perspective shifted as I glanced to the wall where Sarah stood fidgeting nervously, looking her age. She was one of the few people there who knew us both, who had known me before. She had been the only one in the room when I had done this myself over two decades ago. She looked up, staring directly at me across the press of humanity. It mustn't have been hard to locate me, even clothed. I stood out in a crowd. In the recording, I studied her expression more closely than I had that night. She seemed almost sad, clouded with a hint of something else, a complexity of emotion which eluded me. Once I might have been able to read it. Before I had transitioned. Before Thomas had stepped into the hole I had left in her heart. And before I, in response had purged myself of half a lifetime of memories. I waded toward her, through the sea of sweat and flesh. The timestamp of my recording showed it was nearly eleven. Ready? I asked her over the throbbing music. Sarah winced as the beat swelled and her hearing aid squealed in response. She nodded, and together we opened the hidden concertina wall to reveal the space beyond. 
The music died, and the noise of the party trickled to a hushed silence as people realised something was happening. Soon, only the hiss of Thomas's breathing apparatus could be heard. The nurses, doctor and technicians all said nothing as they wheeled Thomas, strapped tightly to his gurney, from the hidden room to the dance floor, trailing wires and medical tubes behind them. My recording left the scene and tracked the crowd as I moved along the perimeter, pushing people back and redistributing the unexpecting audience into the newly opened space. I hadn't fully appreciated how astonished, how repulsed many of the onlookers had been. Even with the benefit of hindsight, I was unable to discern whether they were reacting to Thomas's pallid, hanging flesh and sunken half-lidded eyes, or were merely shocked to discover the reason why he had refused to be seen in public for the past two years. The recording followed my field of view as I returned to watch the procedure. By then, the wires and diodes had been attached to his head and spinal column, and I watched as an IV bag was connected to the cannula which protruded from his atrophied chest. His fluttering eyelids drooped to a close as the solution seeped into his veins. On the opposite side of the room to where I was standing, the crowd parted and Sarah came through, pushing a second, covered gurney. Beneath the sheet, a very human-like series of bumps and lumps protruded. A titter passed through the crowd. If they had been feeling any doubt as to what was going to happen, that doubt had now been dispelled. We watched in silence as a series of cables were strung between the body on the gurney and the cluster of computers the technicians had networked to the ailing Thomas. The doctor and nurse stepped forward and checked Thomas's pulse as the technicians typed furiously at their stations. Time of death, 11.08pm, the doctor intoned for the crowd. He and the nurse stepped back and bent over their digital clipboards. Their fingers tapped the glass as they filled out a multitude of forms in the confused silence. Within minutes, the obscured body on the second gurney twitched, and all interest was lost in the original. The new Thomas sat upright, whipping the sheet away from himself with a flourish. The crowd gasped in suitable amazement when they saw him, all chrome and brass and gold leaf, peeking out from the edges of his well-tailored dinner suit. He laughed a digital buzz and stood atop the gurney. He disconnected the net of wires which entangled him and thrust his arms wide. He turned in a slow circle, accepting the adulation of the crowd. Well, he bellowed at his stunned audience, is this a funeral or a party? He cued the DJ at the back, who scrambled to start the music anew. I stepped forward as he hopped down from his impromptu stage. He laughed as he pulled me into a ferocious hug. By God, Jerry, it's good to see you. Why didn't you convince me to do this sooner? I've never felt so alive. Behind him, I watched as Sarah stepped over to the withered husk, which had been Thomas. She ran a shaking hand across the man's cheek. And I watched as his eyes snapped open. Sarah screamed as the body lurched forward, straining against his restraints with inhuman ferocity. The body hollered in equal measure, and the new Thomas whirled. 
The supposed corpse coughed and hacked a spray of blood and bile into the air, spattering Sarah, Thomas, and myself. No! No, I'm still here! It didn't work! It screamed. I'm still in... The body spasmed back into the padded gurney and jerked violently, rattling its restraints in the deathly silence of the room. After too long a time, it finally collapsed and was still. Red bubbles frothed from its mouth. The doctor leapt forwards, frantically discussing something with the nurse in hushed tones. The lead technician stepped over to the new Thomas and me, holding a readout on a digital tablet. Dosage was a bit off, I guess, he said. It's a fine line keeping them under for just long enough before they shuffle off. Don't worry, though. Patton's reading is a perfect copy. The transfer was a complete success. Welcome to immortality, Thomas. Behind the technician, Sarah held a shaking and blood-spattered hand across her mouth and sobbed quietly next to her husband's corpse. I closed the recording and opened my eyes. While I had sat there revisiting the events of a week ago, the butterflies encaged with me had forgotten what I was. They flocked around me, fearless, dancing through the air in brilliant flashes of blue, green and gold. I looked at the crushed cocoon which Thomas had thrown in the pond. It had sunk to the bottom, almost invisible now among the debris. I wondered what the caterpillar had thought on the day it crawled in there. I wondered whether, if it had come to term, it would have remembered life before the cocoon. And I wondered which was more significant, if it did or if it didn't. And then I deleted my memory of the party and left this place behind. I never again returned. Thanks for listening. This has been the standard version of In the Soft, Fragile Place Between Being. To unlock the premium version of this podcast and this story, you can subscribe to the Terry Talks Fiction website in the link provided in the show notes below. Subscription is free and comes with a host of other benefits, such as having stories mailed directly to your inbox every month and having access to the author reflections that I write and speak at the end of each story. These reflections go into more detail on my writing process, and particularly for this story, how my past experience as an archaeologist has directly informed the methods and the ways in which I write. Don't worry though, if you don't want to be a subscriber, then you can always check out the stories on this podcast and at www.terrytalksfiction.com. The standard versions do not cut anything out from the story itself. For now, I'll leave you with a little bit more of Matt Biscombe's music, and I wish you a wonderful month ahead, and I look forward to talking again soon.